Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 103 of the Forge of Freedom. Uh, today, I have a special guest on the show, a returning guest, uh, former prosecutor and current judge, Dustin Houchin. Uh, for those of you who may be new to the show, Judge Houchin is, a, as I said, a repeat guest. He was on the show on episode 27 when we discussed crime and punishment and the retributive theory of justice. Uh, so if you didn't catch that episode, definitely go back and check that one out. Uh, judge Houchin is, as I said, the judge here in Washington County and the Superior Court of Indiana. Uh, he was elected to the bench on November 8, 2022, and prior to his, his election, he was the county prosecutor for Washington County, Indiana, a position which he was elected in 2006. Uh, before that, he operated the Houchin Law Office in Salem, Indiana. Uh, he's a resident of Salem. Uh, judge Houchin and his wife, Erin Houchin, have three children. Uh, Aaron currently serves as a member of the United States House of Representatives. Uh, Judge Houchin is also the man behind the Judex Substack, where Judge Houchin writes about originalism and textualism in judicial interpretation, separation of powers, the role of retributive justice in our criminal uh, justice system, and judicial restraint, among other topics related to the justice system. Today, we're diving into a complex and controversial topic, and that is problem-solving courts. Um, these problem-solving courts, and I'll, I'll uh, hand this over to, to Judge Houchin here momentarily, uh, are often hailed as more humane and effective ways to address certain offenses, particular, particularly drug-related offenses. And these courts have gained significant traction in recent years, but while they may sound good on the surface, these problem-solving courts also come with their own set of problems. And Judge Houchin is here to help, help us walk through what these courts are and why they may not be the panacea for justice that they're sold as. Uh, now, while these courts may sound good, as I said, on the surface, they're called problem-solving courts. That sounds good. Uh, Judge Houchin raises some compelling arguments that warrant our attention, and throughout our conversation, we'll explore these arguments in detail, discussing the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of these problem-solving courts, the implications for separation of powers, and the perverse incentives created by these courts. So without further ado, Judge Houchin, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Alex, thanks. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on here. I had fun last time, so I'm glad to be back, and uh, thanks for the uh, Shout out to the Judex Substack. Uh, glad to glad to have attention to that, and anybody who is interested, maybe they'll find their way there. So. Yeah, and you you, uh, you started that. Uh, I don't recall exactly when you posted your first uh, post, but uh, you've had it going a little over a year uh, by this year point. Ago. Yeah, yep. yeah, and you've got quite a, a catalog of of content there. So I definitely would encourage people to go check that out, and I certainly want you to plug that uh, when we close up the show because I think it's got some really great information on there. It's 
tailored towards sort of the legal community and the judicial community, but I think there's a lot of other more broadly appealing information on there as well, particularly your uh, your brief updates about you know what's going on in current affairs and, and cases around the country. I think those are really, really interesting and more broadly appealing. So uh, definitely want you to plug that uh, before we close up the show. Um, but in terms of these problem-solving courts, and uh, I'll link to the article. You've written numerous articles about this on your Judex uh, Substack, uh, speaking of that. And you have uh, compiled the articles that you've written on this into one uh, one Substack where people can find all of them, and it's called Problem Courts. So the title gives away the lead uh, to some degree. These are called Problem Solving Courts, and you call the article Problem Courts. Um, so what are Problem Solving Courts? And what what are they trying to address, and what are some of the problems that, that we see with these courts? Yeah, so we'll start by sort of defining or telling people what they are. Uh, I find it easiest to define them by contrasting them with what we normally think of as a court, or you might call it traditional court. So in a traditional court system, you would have two sides who, you know, typically in our, in our world that we deal in most, Lee Alex's uh, prosecution and defense in the criminal world. And you would have an adversarial process or hearings that are contested and the two sides fight it out and the judge sits as a neutral, detached arbiter of the case and, and hears both sides and makes, an, makes a decision. And the problem-solving court model is much different than that. It's not an adversarial model, it's a consensus model. So rather than the parties being adversarial with a detached neutral judge, the parties are comprise a team. So there's usually a team of people, including a judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, a series of social workers or social work type roles that comprise the team. And the team makes decisions about what should happen in the case uh, on consensus rather than the judge deciding in an adversarial process. So that's quite different than a normal court process would work. The, the overriding goal or the philosophical underpinning is is rehabilitation. So they, they, the, the aim of the group is to rehabilitate the defendant, uh, typically a drug offense. So it could be a drug court, but, it, but they have expanded use into many different fields. Uh, so when we'll talk a little bit about that as well, I'm sure. So that broadly defined, I think, what what that model is. Yeah. So as you know, and as most of our listeners know, I'm, I, I do a lot of defense work, um, a lot of criminal defense work. And I hear and a lot of people in the general public hear uh, sort of a common refrain or objection to, to the way that drug offenses in particular are handled, that that somehow it's 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 not just to send people away to prison because they've consumed drugs uh, uh, that you know, that the society generally disapproves of. And so there are sort of three camps. Um, obviously, we talked about the retributive theory in episode 27, where, you know, it's, it's about social status, and it's about sending a signal to the person that this is a behavior that's not approved of, and you should be punished for it. That's, there, there's no really calculation as to whether or not it's beneficial to society or that it's going to reform the person in some way to get them to quit using drugs. It's about punishment. It's about sending the signal and 
uh, you know, making a status um, uh, sort of uh, claim that this is something you shouldn't be doing. Um, some people say, well, why would we do that if it doesn't change their behavior? So then you have this sort of reactionary uh, approach, which is, I think, uh, would include these problem solving course where people say we should focus on getting people to change their behavior. So rather than sending people uh, to prison or to jail, we should try to reform them. We should send them to re rehab and fix them. Um, and, and that's where these sort of problem solving courts uh, or kind of the rationale behind these problem solving courts. Uh, and then there's the third camp, which I fall into, which is that we shouldn't criminalize drugs at all. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that the problem solving courts uh, and the problems with incarcerating people for drug crimes are uh, sort of j just immoral to begin with, uh, that we shouldn't control what people do or don't put in their bodies, uh, etc. But so this problem solving court really is in that that second category where they're focused on reforming and rehabilitating the person. But there are lots of problems with this approach. And it's not that there's a problem necessarily with rehab in particular, right? And I think we'll talk about that, but that it's sort of the implementation of these problem solving courts. Uh, is that is that a fair characterization? Oh, yeah. So broad, I, I agree with your three broad buckets of, of how drug crimes are treated. Um, I think inherent in the rehabilitative model or the problem solving court model is the assumption that the rehabilitative efforts work. And I don't agree with that assumption. I don't think there's evidence to that effect. Um, but even if they do work, there's a separate question of, is it proper role for the court or, or the judge in particular to be engaged in that? And uh, so that, I think those are separate questions and, and you know, I know we'll yeah. talk, we're going to get into those deeper. Uh, but yeah, I think as a general framework, those are the, the big questions that we need to be asking about. Yeah. And so you alluded, you alluded to two um, of the, the primary objections that you raise. And, and um, I think we'll go ahead and, and dive into those. The first is that these problem solving courts are not effective. Uh, second is that it, it, it's not the proper role of the courts and that there's some a problem with the separation of powers. And then the third, uh, I just highlight all three of these here, is that it creates bad incentives. And there's all sorts of problems created uh, within these problem solving courts because of these perverse incentives. So uh, to start out, would you mind to talk a little bit about why y you consider these problem solving courts to be ineffective? Yeah, so they've been around about 30 years, 30 years now. So the first problem solving court was a drug court was created about 30 years ago. Um, the last 10 years really has been a, a upward trajectory of more of these courts being created, particularly in Indiana. We've created over 150 in the last 10 years. We're, we're sort of a, Indiana's sort of a front runner in creating problem solving courts right now. And uh, so we have 30 years worth of study of them. So it takes a while to study things in, in a social science context, but we've been going on 30 years. And in that time, uh, there's been no good empirical evidence that they work any better than traditional courts at getting people to change behavior. So there certainly are studies that show that they work, 
right? But when you dig into those studies, the, typically the ones that show that there's some benefit to uh, the problem-solving courts, they're funded by people with an interest in the problem-solving court and the there are methodological flaws in them. There are some serious studies that have been done, meta-analyses of those studies and some more serious studies of like randomized controlled trials, gold standard type studies. When, when you look at it at that level, at the highest um, level of scrutiny and highest standards, they don't prove to be effective. So one of my contentions is we're courts, we're supposed to operate on evidence. And although there's a lot of anecdotal claims that, that these things work, there is no good evidence that, that in the manner that we would rely on and say in a criminal trial, there's just not good empirical evidence that they work. So because of that, I think we have, we have to take that they work off the table as a justification for them. And then there may be other justifications, but those need to be scrutinized as well. And I, I think those things tend to fall apart. Those other justifications tend to fall apart. What we're commonly left with in my view is just um, anecdotal evidence. And so if you ask somebody, a judge who's in favor or, a, or a, somebody who's in favor of problem solving courts, do they work? Your typical response would be, well, we had Dave who went through and he turned out great. And I don't, and I don't dispute that. Dave probably did turn out great, right? And you can point to anecdotal successes, but in, a, in terms of long longitudinal studies with empirical evidence and data that they work, it just doesn't stack up over time. And we have to be honest about it. We, we ought to, as a judicial system, be honest about that. But what we see, on the other hand, is the promotion of these studies that are actually not valid um, and an a emphatic claim that these things reduce recidivism and help. And that's just untrue. And I don't like to speak untruths, especially in court. So one thing, one article you point out in your uh, Substack is this, uh, it's actually, a, I said an article, but it's really a, a, an academic um, publication uh, or journal, The Problem with Problem Solving Courts, uh, written by Erin Collins. And one of the things that she, and you point this out in your substack, is that there are numerous problems, and you mentioned recidivism, that's one way that you would measure success, and you, you, know, you talked about sort of anecdotal evidence, and you could say, the same thing about the prison system, right? If you send right. away somebody to prison, they may come out at the end of their sentence and be perfectly fine. Uh, and that would be an anecdotal example of how the prison system worked, right? right? And that's a lot of times how it works with these problem-solving courts. But she talks about numerous problems with these studies that, you, that you've alluded to uh, about sample size, about selection bias, about uh, sort of methodological problems. You mind to talk a little bit about some of those issues? Yeah. So first off, there's a there's a real incentive structure in place to proclaim success. So the people motivated are motivated to say it worked. So sometimes these studies are just interviewing participants or interviewing people that run the courts and asking whether they're successful or not. And people tend to say yes to that, and then that gets published as a success. And so those that would be like the bottom floor of of a study. Um, Another problem in these studies is there's no, there are no consistent definitions across uh, the country or even within systems or between counties. So for instance, everyone's in, interested in recidivism, but there is no 
consistent definition of recidivism. So what what is recidivism? Is it a new crime? Is it failing a drug screen in the drug court? Is it if it is a new crime? Is it how far out? Is it one year, two years, three years? So there's no consistent definitions, and then so we don't tend to have consistent data across across courts. Uh, another issue is selection bias. So sometimes studies will only survey people that successfully graduated and not count the people who were discharged and then claim a high success rate. And um, you see that a lot with the studies that are funded by people who have an interest in, in the perpetuation of the courts. So it's not enough to just look at a study. You have, you have to really dig in and see, is it a good study? So there was a recent, I think a month or maybe no more than two months ago, a study came out by a law professor, Megan Stevenson. Uh, it's in the Boston Law Review, I think. And she did a meta-analysis, which is a survey of studies. So she took a look at, I think, over 50 studies that have been done on lots of interventions in the criminal justice system. And then she took away anything that wasn't the gold standard study. So anything that was not randomized controlled trial studies and then looked at only those and found that none of them demonstrated that problem solving courts were effective. So, so that, that's a recent study that came out that I think proves that point. Look, once you clear out sort of the things that aren't really valid and you look at the real solid evidence, which by the way, is what judges are supposed to do in court every day, right? Like we're, that's one thing that bothers me about this is we, so many judges or ju judicial systems accept this on anecdotal claims or flimsy evidence when when a major portion of our job is to assess the validity of evidence and and that just seems to fall away when it comes to problem solving courts so but the data is clear when you look at it on a um, serious of the serious studies they don't prove effectiveness one thing we've talked about recidivism recidivism on a couple uh, occasions here already most of our listeners will know what that means but uh, obviously <laughs> you talk about the problem with, the, with defining what that means in the context of these studies generally broadly what we're talking about when we're talking about recidivism is whether the criminal behavior the, per the person who's charged with the crime after they go through either their sentence or some form of rehab or, or whatever it is do they go back to the, the behavior they were engaged in prior to either that that punishment or that treatment so broadly speaking that's what we mean by recidivism but of course as you point out the problem is what what exactly do we mean does it mean if they were engaged in uh you know using methamphetamine before they were charged and went through whatever court process they went through do they go back to using methamphetamine and is that a one-time occasion is that multiple ongoing use what does that mean or does it mean they go back and they commit some other crime uh, what counts is, is that a fair characterization of the problem yeah that's a that's a problem and i think what most you know person on the street when you say do problem solving courts work i think in their mind that means well does it rehabilitate people and then they're not they go on to lead productive lives and they're not still in the system and that's not necessarily the definition that's used. So it depends on what the study design claims recidivism is. But even within that, if you say we're looking at someone who is successful in a province solving court, well, there's a there's difficulty even defining success. So uh, 
you might say, well, it's not part of success means you graduated the problem solving court. Well, I've seen problem solving courts. I, I, when I was prosecutor, one, one participant in the problem solving court failed 17 drug screens over a course of six months and then was successfully graduated from the program. So I don't think most people in the street would agree that failing 17 drug screens is, should be counted as a success, right? Um, so there are inconsistent definitions of success. There are inconsistent definitions of recidivism. And so that makes these, makes it difficult to measure uh, outcomes, especially when you're talking about across the country or across the state. So, so one thing, and this, this will, um, sort of lead us into our next, uh, category or our next, uh, segment about concerns for separation of powers. But, you know, when I, when I was in law school, I, I'd never heard of a problem solving court that never came across my, my radar. And then, so when I got into practice in civil practice, starting out, I still had never heard of them. And it wasn't really until I got engaged in more of the uh, criminal justice system that I encountered these these things. Um, and I still didn't really know what they were. Um, and that sort of raises my next question, and I, and I think will lead us into this separation of powers issue, is how are these created? How are these problem-solving courts? How do they come about? Where do they come from? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the first one was created by a court. So a court, a judge just um, designed it and implemented it, um, which I think is a problem to start with. Most of them are created by courts or judicial systems. So uh, the Supreme Court of a state might issue rules, which is what our, our Supreme Court in Indiana issued rules for the creation of a problem, allowing local judges to create problem solving courts. And there's even now at this time in Indiana, a special division of the Supreme Court that oversees the implementation and functioning of problem solving courts. So the, the judiciary, the Supreme Court of Indiana created these, made a policy decision that these ought to exist and created them. After that, the Indiana legislature came back and codified their existence, I think recognizing or, or maybe had some concerns about the separation of power issue and then codified and said, okay, we'll, we'll make them, we'll put the legislature's um, stamp of approval on them. Some states start with legislative, with legislation, um, but generally, even when that's the case, the, the legislation just says, aspirationally, we think problem solving courts are good. We approve their creation and we assign that function to the court system. And then the court creates the policies and the implementation and the, um, monitors the growth rate and those kinds of things. So takes on a real executive function at that point. So I think there are real problems with separation of powers in the creation of problem solving courts as we've seen them be, be created across the, the country and in Indiana. And then there's also separation of powers at the individual case level, which, which um, has a whole other host of concerns. So when we, we when we talk about separation of powers, again, this is something that most of our listeners will will know and understand. But ordinarily, we think about right the three branches of government: the the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive branch. And when we talk about a separation of powers issue, we're talking about where one of those branches bleeds over into the province, one of the other branches, right? right. So 
so how do the problem solving courts violate that principle yeah and so i think it's so the founders established through the constitution the three separate branches through the articles in the, in the constitution right and the judicial branch were most worried about political influence on uh, judicial decisions. So we don't want judges making political decisions. We want their decisions to be based on law. So to encourage that, the judicial system has the least, the judicial system is the most insulated from political wins, if you will. So at the federal level, they're appointed, the judges are appointed and they're appointed for life. Many states judges are appointed. Our higher court judges in Indiana are appointed. They don't stand for election. On our local level, we're we're elected, but then there's six-year terms. So that long term of office is designed to uh, keep politics out. And then there are lots of rules about what kind of political activity we can be engaged in during our term. And I think that's all good. We want to insulate the judiciary. We don't want judges making uh, political decisions. However, because it's the most protect, protected, it's the least accountable branch, the judiciary. So when the judiciary starts making public policy or operating in an, in an executive function, so bleeding into the legislature or the executive, that's the most dangerous violation of separation of powers in my view. Um, it's not good for the others to bleed into the judicial function, but at least those others are, have checks on them from the political process where the judiciary is protected from that. So the judiciary is very powerful and unaccountable for the most part. So deciding like the Indiana court system did to create problem solving courts is a major policy decision. You know, you're, you're taking what is literally thousands of years of process and tradition in the court system of an adversarial process and turning that on its head and making that policy decision to do that as a judiciary that's unaccountable to the people. So I find a lot of problem with that. I don't think that should occur. If the people of Indiana wanted this model, it should have been done through the legislature first, and it should be supervised by an executive branch, not through the court system is, is my view. Um, so it's really dangerous. So assuming, and we talked about the problems with studies about, um, you know, the effectiveness of these problem solving courts or the lack of effectiveness of these problem solving courts, but assuming for the sake of argument that they were effective, uh, right, there's still this problem with the, the uh, separation of powers. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about it, how that manifest in practice like what is the judge doing in these problem solving courts that is problematic and that yeah. really is outside their role as a judge yeah yeah so i think that gets to the second issue with separation of power i see i see two separation of powers issues one at the sort of creation level and one at the individual case level so an individual case level normally the judge is in his office in the chambers if you will while the while the negotiations and things are going on and then if you and the prosecutor can't come to a decision on something or you need a uh, you need an opinion on a legal issue you bring that to the judge the judge has been removed from that process what's what they call a neutral detached arbiter right 
and the judge comes out, hears both sides of the arguments and, and makes a decision. But only when you need a decision, right? Like you, I, I think of the judge sometimes as the magic eight ball. Like we're not supposed to give an answer until you guys come and shake us, right? Um, so you're supposed to be detached. You're supposed to be neutral. That's, the, that's thousands of years of tradition. The problem solving court model, the judge is in the room. The judge is part of the team and you discuss all the activities of the participant. So I don't know, maybe we need to back up a little bit and say a, a person commits a drug offense, they get committed to drug court. Instead of going to jail, they go to the drug court. Um, they don't get a sentence as long as they participate in the drug court activities, which would include rehabilitation, maybe community service, counseling, looking for a job, they help them get housing. There's a lot of social work that goes on with it. The judge in the problem solving court model is a participant in all of that and is listening to, to all of this occur. So they're not detached, frequently not neutral because they become personally invested in the outcome. You know, it's the, the judge is part of the team and the team is supposed to build consensus and, and they start rooting for the person to succeed, which then impacts the judge's judgment about what should happen. Maybe they develop an, a personal affinity for the defendant and find it difficult to rule against him or her because they like them. You know, a lot of people are likable sometimes. And um, our traditional system protected against all of that. The judge was was supposed to be protected from all that. So when you put the judge in the room with the participants and you make the judge a cheerleader or an advocate for the defendant, uh, it, it sort of obliterates that separation at the individual case level, uh, which I find to be a problem uh, because uh, what I think we see a lot is, is uh, a lack of accountability, sort of an enabling a system that enables the bad behavior rather than provides accountability and then becomes detrimental in the long run to the person's success rather than rather than fostering that success and detrimental to the community at large. So, well, I know, uh, and I, I don't have the, the report or the article at my fingertips that I'll, I'll try to link to it in the show notes, but I know that even uh, there are quite a few people in the defense bar that are critical of these problem solving course because it takes away the adversarial process right, right? which you alluded to normally when you go to court there are two sides of the v two sides you know there's a plaintiff yep. and a defendant or the state and the defendant and the, they you know engage in discovery and negotiation and and uh in anytime there's an issue in the case they take it before the judge and the judge as a neutral party or a neutral uh player in in the case makes a decision they they um they resolve disputes uh where they're in that adversarial process that's not what's going on here in these problem solving courts right correct yeah the judge is a is an active participant in the consensus building and the advocacy for the for the participant for the defendant um, yeah. which just destroys the ability of the judge to be detached and neutral. You just, you can't be both at the same time. Yeah. Uh, some of them have, and, and the retort to this from advocates for problem solving courts would say, well, there's a model where you have a separate judge rule on discharge decisions. So if, if there's an allegation that the person violated and should be discharged, and that's true, that exists. But what I think, but I think that rarely occurs. And I think uh, the team looks to the judge for 
the, the judge is the highest official in the room, typically used to being people deferring to him or her, and people are used to deferring to the judge, and they kind of look to the judge for uh, which way the judge is leaning. So I think a lot of, once the judge becomes personally invested, a lot of those decisions never never bubble up to actually um, having hearings on discharge decisions. They just sort of get consensus becomes, um, let's just keep giving the person a chance. And hey, I, you know, it's, um, there are instances where people are given extra chances and they succeed, but uh, I think there are more instances of enabling and, and destructive behavior and negative consequences that come out of that. And the the article that I was referencing from the defense bar, I, uh, like I said, I'll try to find that. But but their objection to these problem solving courts was that yeah, it takes away the adversarial process. But their client uh, is also going into this sort of uh, amalgam of different players who are dictating their life, you know, for yeah. who knows how long until they succeed or until they graduate or meet whatever sort of parameters may be in place for them to, to meet, uh, which are sometimes seemingly fungible. Uh, but it reminds me, and I, I can't remember if we talked about this in the last podcast or not, but I know we've talked about it personally, that this quote uh, that you brought to my attention from C.S. Lewis, that, you know, of, of all tyrannies, that quote, uh, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And the quote goes on, but you get the gist of it is that yeah. that's a lot of what's going on here, it seems like, in these problem-solving courts. Yes, and I think uh, defense attorneys are right to be concerned. It's a it's a substantial intrusion into the life of a defendant. You're 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 required to go to pretty intensive treatment services, look for jobs, go to appointments, you know, report back. You got to come to court, and people are probing into your life, and all. And it um, it's all done on the assumption that this is better for the defendant, even though the empirical evidence does not demonstrate that. So what well, what can happen, I think, is you're satisfying some kind of need for the team members to feel good about themselves, that they're doing this good work rather than objectively doing something useful for the for the client or the defendant. So that's a real danger in the system. Uh, and it, yeah, it's some I've had some people compare them to Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to keep yeah. you in here for your own good and forever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll get to the, this sort of plays into the, the next category, sort of the perverse incentives that are inherent in some of these problem solving courts, not only with their creation, but also with their, their operation. Um, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But so you mentioned sort of two levels of problem here with the separation of powers, the creation at the creation of these courts, and then also at the sort of the operation of the courts at the the individual case level, you know, at, at the creation, you, you mentioned that 
that judges are often engaged in the creation of these. So they're policymaking, they're stepping into the process of the legislature. And then at the individual case level, they're sort of acting as king or, or you know, they're policing the, the case, so to speak. And, yeah. and so they're stepping into the function of the, the executive. Um, so they're really stepping into both branches. Um, so what, why are courts or, or judges, why are they creating these things? What, if there's not solid empirical evidence to support their efficacy, uh, what's, why are they doing it? Why are they creating these things? Yeah. So there's a segment of that in the Collins article that you referenced and that I read about, um, where part of her study was to answer that question. Well, if they don't work but they're very popular and they're growing. Why are judges doing it? And the conclusion she came to, which is a conclusion that I uh, share in my observation, is that judges like doing it. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel like they're doing something meaningful. Um, I think there are also some tangential political benefits to the judges or um, both big P and small P political benefits. So those judges that are elected in office can tout this program as a as something that they're proactive, they're doing in the community, and they'll they'll frequently be. If a judge starts a problem-solving court, there'll be media attention on that. There'll be praise in the community. Uh, there'll be praise from the higher-level court system about look what great work this judge is doing. And so that's all people like that, you know. And then um, it gives buys you some prestige within the system because the the court system, for instance, like the Indiana judiciary likes problem-solving courts. I don't, I think that is pretty evident. They, they push for the creation of them. So if you take them up on it and you create one, then you're, a, you are um, seen favorably by the, by the system. Um, so there's those incentives to create them. And then over time there has been, there, there are, as litigation gets more complex and litigation gets more expensive, we see, we have seen over decades, um, litigation decrease. So most cases are worked out. I think it's over 95% of criminal cases and over 99%, 98, 99% of civil cases are worked out prior to trial. So judges have had less and less to do in terms of their traditional function. And I think they've replaced that with more activist functions like problem solving court or pretrial service programs where the judge really is like a super social worker role rather than the traditional uh, neutral magistrate role so 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 one thing and i think this is true in lots of areas and especially with when it comes to government programs i think we should judge them by their effectiveness not by their intentions and i think that these are often while there may that while there are certainly uh, bad incentives for the creation of these. There are also some good intentions, right? I mean, these are sometimes born out of this idea that the justice system is not effective at addressing certain types of crimes, especially drug crimes, because there's sort of this endless cycle of uh, prosecuting, incarcerating, and punishing people, uh, and then putting them right back on the street to do the same thing again. So uh, people, yeah. I think, in the system and from the outside perceive that we're sort of banging our head against a wall uh, addressing drug crimes. Um, of course, your argument uh, about the retributive theory is that it's not really about deterrence or rehabilitation. It's about, you know, this, this status claim. Uh, so there, there's, there's that argument. But 
even if these courts are come about from good intentions, um, what what do they have to show? What are the arguments for them, I suppose? And and why does the Indiana judiciary favor them if there's not solid evidence to 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 support their efficacy? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's a question I'm, I'm trying to raise through what I'm writing, you know, trying to say, hey, we should take a step back from these things. We're building them too quickly. We're emphasizing them too much uh, because there's no good data that they work. You could make the argument that the that it's a positive good that judges find meaning in their work and that they're happy. And, and, and it, in surveys of judges that do problem solving courts, a higher percent of judges say they enjoy the work that are involved in problem solving courts than in traditional courts. So there's there's clearly a uh, a net benefit to the judge. Uh, they seem to like the people that create them seem to like what they're doing. So you could justify them by saying, well, it's beneficial to the judges and we want our judges to be happy. I don't that I don't find that persuasive. I think that I want, I want judges to be happy about their work, but I don't think that's a sufficient reason to intrude to this degree on defendants' lives, to spend this much money, to create this much false hope, um, and to uh, set aside the traditional adversarial process. So I don't think that justifies it, but certainly people can, can disagree with that, and many do. I think that's part of why it's pushed um, so much. And then um, there are a lot of financial incentives pushing it as well. And um, again, I, I'm not criticizing any single individuals. And I think people go into this with the best of intentions. I think every judge that I've met that starts one of these sincerely believes that it's the right thing to do. Uh, I just don't know that they've thought through the downsides, which is what I'm trying to, to bring to the surface. And um, I don't know how aware or how much in the front of, them, of their minds people are of the financial incentives that are that are pushing things in this direction, um, and they should be more aware of those things while they're when they're operating in this space. Well, well let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's an important point. Uh, obviously, I've mentioned perverse incentives. You've mentioned sort of all the players that are involved in the problem-solving court process i guess first of all would would you talk a little bit about who is typically involved in a in a case that's in a problem solving problem solving court and where do these financial interests seep in yeah so there's several players there's of course the judge and the prosecutor and the defense attorney and most of those people are getting paid whether they're in problem solving court or not right so that's i don't have as much concern on the financial incentives for those traditional court employees or, or justice system employees. But there are also frequently social workers, um, therapists, caseworkers, maybe medical providers, things like that. And so these people are part of the team. And commonly their jobs depend on people being in the court. You know, so they, they need participants. So if if they if the court requires 10 people to participating to function and they get down to five people there becomes a real effort to recruit more people because 
they don't want the court to fail because that means they would lose their job as case manager or social worker attached to the court. So sometimes they're actual employees of the problem solving court. Sometimes they may be uh, employees of, of local mental health providers that are attached to the court and some of the money goes to, to pay you know, a part of that person's salary or something. So they're very real uh, job and salary concerns attached to it. Now, none of those are, are uh, nobody that's job is dependent on it would agree to that. But, but I see it, it's true, uh, that concern does seep in. So uh, you see that the threat with that is we keep people in longer than we should because we don't want the numbers to get low or we let people in who really aren't, we don't think would be a good fit just so we have our numbers up. And when you do that, you're really setting people up for failure, you're enabling their conduct, making it dangerous for them in the community. So those those issues are should be tightly controlled. In our but then, but then, so you've alluded to the to the uh, the problem with numbers about maintaining an adequate number of cases in the system to justify the existence of the problem solving court. Yeah. But there are also other incentives within the the problem solving court itself, right? I mean maybe not only do they keep the defendant in longer, but maybe they make them jump through more hoops. You know, uh, do they go to meetings with this counselor or that therapist or, or and how many of those are necessary and who is deciding whether they are or not? Right. Uh, you, you mind to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's all, all true. And so the group is deciding what the person should do. And so you get, you get some movement and of course the group's going to favor the activities that they're engaged in. So the person gets, gets pushed to certain areas. Um, in addition, there are training dollars that are set, that are associated. So part of the, what's allowed as, um, expenses for it, for a problem solving court is to train your personnel. Well, uh, the trainings, the main training is like the national adult, um, drug court, program. I can't remember what it's NADCP is what it's called. Hmm. And they have a national training. Usually it's somewhere really nice and people will fly from Indiana to, I think last year it was at Houston, uh, at a nice hotel and you go out there and it's sort of a vacation and you eat well and you mingle with people and you, and learn stuff certainly. But I always vote when, when I have an opportunity vote against going to those trainings because you're spending a significant chunk of the budget on, sending people on these trips, uh, which I don't think is, is a good use, but that, that becomes sort of an incentive as well. You know, the group gets to travel together and go to this locale and they, they switch it around to different places. And um, to me, that's a bad, I'm in favor of training, but it's a bad look when it's, when it's associated with this, I think. Um, and then there are issues with the national training itself that I have, but, uh, that may be in the next well, later. Well, break. you you alluded to this in your in your Substack article, um, this conference, uh, and I may get it wrong here too, but I, I think it's the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. Yeah, I think that I'm not sure if that's correct or not, but yeah. uh, it's close. And uh, they rebranded uh, to All Rise. Um, I'm not sure what the reasoning was for the the rebranding, but 
uh, I can speak from experience here. I, I went on one occasion and of course I'm in that third category that we talked about that, that yeah. I don't think that drug crime drugs usage should be a crime. Um, and I think that these problem solving courts are an outgrowth of the, the war on, on drugs. Uh, nevertheless, my experience at, at this conference uh, in Houston last year was that there was good, tr there was some good training there. Um, you, you know, it wasn't all, I wouldn't say it was all bad by any stretch. Uh, and I think that there are good resources for people who uh, want treatment, uh, who are seeking out rehabilitation in some way, but that's, that's part of the fundamental problem, right? Is that people have to want the treatment for it to be successful. And by forcing people into these problem solving course, because they perceive it, that it may be beneficial. It's, you know, are they really in it for the right purpose? Do they right. really want, that's part of the problem with their efficacy going back to that point. But the other thing that just struck me immediately when I arrived at this conference was who the vendors were, uh, you know, you show up and it's at this nice convention center and it's all drug companies and medical, you know, uh, companies. And, and, um, you can tell who, who was funding the event. Um, so, so that gave me some concern about what, what the motivations were, uh, and some of the biases that might exist at the conference. Um, so anyway, that I was only there once that was, that was my experience um there so uh, there are certainly anyway getting back to your article there are certainly lots of dollars coming from these sorts of companies uh you you have a list uh platinum sponsors abbott labs which is a toxicology testing company right. thermo fisher Averhealth, repath i mean these are all sort of medical field related companies yeah on the Substack, i wrote about this i attached an appendix which comes from their website about who the sponsors are and every single one is a drug testing company a electronic monitoring company a, a ignition interlock for vehicles you know you can't drive your car until you blow into a tube and show you're not intoxicated and so all of those organizations while you know, i don't necessarily question their intentions but they're for-profit companies who have an interest in continuing provide services to problem-solving courts and the more problem-solving courts they have the more potential clients they have so I think we have to we should be very very aware of that when we're dealing with these things because um, if you're going to that conference there's my guess is not much criticism of the kind that I'm leveling at the conference right because the sponsors would not want that to be there um, so I, I, I just think you have to go in with clear eyes about what we're dealing with here. And, and uh, especially when on the other side of that is all the empirical data that they are not effective, right? So on one side, you have a profit motive to keep them going. And on the other side, you have no real good evidence that they're working. So I personally don't know how you square those two things, but we seem to be squaring them at a very rapid pace here in Indiana. Yeah. Well, and, and this, uh, these are all, these topics and these criticisms are all sort of interrelated, right? Uh, it, it, you see with the sponsors, this sort of intermingling of corporate interests with government, uh, a lack of government oversight, right? Because yeah. who's overseeing these programs uh, and, and obviously there's less oversight when you're, uh, when, you know, there's 
questionable creation of these programs and who's in charge of them. Who knows? I mean, it, it, nobody knows a lot of times. Yeah. Um, but also a, a company that's in the business of, you know, doing toxicology reports uh, is going to benefit and profit the more toxicology reports they do. Right. So the incentive is to force people into these these programs, uh, even even where the intentions may be good to begin with. Uh, there's certainly concern about, um, you know, the the magnitude of uh, those interests. Yeah. And yeah. maybe you could maybe you could weigh those and stack those up and say, uh, yeah, despite those concerns, I think it's still worth it if you had good evidence that they're highly effective. But we, we don't. So what what is the what is the interest? What's what compels us to keep creating these? I have a hard time answering that that question. And. Um, so I think we have to be pretty cautious about that area. Yeah. And I, I like the, the phrase that you, I'm not sure if you came up with it or if you got it from somewhere else, but the, the compassion industrial complex, right. That's sort of yeah. this, I, I like that because it, it, uh, sort of bounces off the other sorts of industrial complexes we hear about from time to time, especially for instance, the, the military industrial complex, which is right. again, this intermingling of government, um, and corporate interests, right? right? The, the, the Raytheons, the Lockheed Martins, uh, who profit from war have the year of politicians. And so you, you have this military industrial complex and you have that same sort of dynamic here going on a little bit, right? Yes, I, as far as I know, I coined that. I, I may have stolen it from someone, but if I did, I don't know who it was. But yeah. um, but more serious even perhaps than the defense industrial complex because the at least in the defense space, they're pairing with the legislative and executive branch that has more uh, oversight and, and um, political checks on it than the judiciary. When you're pairing with the judicial branch, with which is insulated from oversight and is actually the overseer, then it gets yeah. it gets really dangerous at that point, and uh, so like Collins writes in that article about there's not even uh, really any appellate review of problem solving court decisions because there are no decisions that are made that are subject to review. You know, the judge just kind of is the king, as you mentioned earlier, and and the group says this, and then there's no appellate process for it. It's never so. Um, there's there as far as i know no real uh, no no serious auditing system or anything like that in place so it's uh the the indiana court services does come down and do a review i think once every few years but it's not a nothing that you would call an audit or anything like that and so it's really up to the local group to kind of police all that stuff and they're not we're talking about uh, entities that are not in the business of that you know, so a court is not in the business of operating what's effectively, not traditionally in the business of operating what's effectively a, a um, executive branch administrative body, right? But that's what they've created. And so I think the operation of it is, um, and the checks and controls on it are, are lacking because because it's sort of a new animal. Yeah, and, and I want to drive home that point because I think it's a, it's a great point and a, an extremely important one. Uh, you need, you, you pointed out that distinction sort of between the military or defense industrial complex and, and the compassion industrial complex and, and how at least the legislature in theory has some oversight over what 
the, the Pentagon is doing, right? Um, although there's some problems with that, I, like there hasn't been a declaration of war and who know, I, I can't remember the last time, World War II, I think was the yeah. last time a, a war was declared by Congress. Uh, but in theory, anyway, they could step in and uh, exert their authority. Uh, and the problem, as you point out, is that here the, in the most dangerous form of the violation of the separation of powers is where the judiciary steps into these other roles because who gets to decide, right, whether or not what they're doing is constitutional? Ultimately, it's it's the courts. Court. And, <laughs> and so, of course, generally the courts will be inclined to, to say that what they're doing is okay. Yeah. And beyond that, uh, the political checks, you know, the legislature is oversight of that domain and the people have political checks on the legislators. But if, if a majority of the people of Indiana disagree with the creation of problem solving courts by the Indiana Supreme Court, what remedy do they have? Yeah, that they 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 cannot vote the chief justice of the Supreme Court or the justice of the Supreme Court out of office. There's a there's a retention vote every 10 years, I think. But that's sort of not real, not really a, a, a serious check on their power. So there's no there's no remedy for the people to change this policy. There's no mechanism to do it. And that, I think that's, uh, that's not proper. Yeah. I mentioned the, the CS Lewis quote, but I'd like to share one other here that, um, I read for the first time as an undergraduate and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, it's Federalist 51 from James Madison. And this really drives home the point about the, the importance of the separation of powers. And it says, if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And so that's really, that, that highlights the problem with, you know, people might think, what's the big deal about this separation of powers issue? If the courts are doing a good thing, at least in theory, what's the problem with that? Well, it's because you've, you've violated this principle of having a government that controls itself, right? That's the whole point of the, the separation of powers is, is, a, is a balance uh, on each other branch of government. And so by violating that, you're, you're uh, violating this principle and theoretically, uh, going down a path toward unlimited government and a government that does not control itself. Yeah, because I, mean, I assume, I don't know that we've talked about this, but I assume you're a natural law proponent. The rights yes. naturally belong to the, to the individuals. And then we cede that power to, to the government uh, and, and then rightfully have a check on that power because we're, we have the ultimate authority as citizens. But when that We've only ceded a limited amount of power to the uh, judiciary, which should be to resolve disputes. And then when the judiciary gets outside of that, they're they're getting outside of the they're working outside of the power that we have ceded to them, and we have no check on that. Um, so that I think that's a really dangerous situation. And so I think it's Federalist 68. Alexander Hamilton followed up on what Madison wrote uh, in the one you quoted. Uh, by saying, by pointing out that the judiciary is the most dangerous branch to viol that can violate the separation of powers. And when we, um, 
he says the the executive has or the legislature has the pen and the uh, executive has the sword and when the judiciary picks those up it's the most dangerous actor or something to that effect and that agree with that i think that's true i think it's what we're seeing is occurring here with these creation and operation of problem solving courts all right. Well, Judge Halchin, well, I think we've covered most of the uh, topics that we had hoped to cover in this episode. I know we, we talked about, you know, how, how these are created, what, what these problem solving courts are, sort of the, the, the high level, at least objections to these these courts, their lack of efficacy, uh, separation of powers issue, and then also the, the perverse incentives that exist within this compassion industrial complex. Is there anything that, that we missed that you wanted to make sure that we pointed out? about this issue? Um, the only thing I would say is I, I think, so I am a proponent of retributive theory and I, um, and we, and we had a whole, we had a whole podcast about that, um, previously. And so I, I think a, um, an alternative to the problem solving courts is, is a retributive model. And I, I would, I promote that and it, and it, um, takes a much more constrained view of the judiciary. Uh, and I think would, resolve some of these issues and I'm not in the, in promoting that model, I'm not, um, denigrating the treatment aspect. I just don't think the treatment should be done integrated into the judicial system. It should be removed as a separate, separate function, perhaps an executive function, uh, or even a private, a private market function. But yeah. the, the worst place that, for it to be is integrated into the judicial system. So I think if we, if we, when we're making these decisions, lean more to a retributive model, it, it would help guide uh, guide us away from the separation of powers problems that, that these these present. Well, that's partly how we uh, decided to to do this podcast, right? Was that that was an area where where you and I agree was that yeah. I think that the rehabilitation uh, is least appropriately in the province of the courts. So that's that's the last place it should be uh, that that people should voluntarily seek out treatment because that's where it's most effective is where they, they yeah. truly desire, genuinely desire that treatment. Um, not to say that it's not effective for everybody. It is effective for some people, uh, which you obviously agree, you obviously agree with, but uh, it's just not the, appropriately the province of the courts. And speaking of retributive theory, I, I alluded to it uh, briefly at the beginning. Um, you want to say just a little bit about that? I, I know I'll point to, to people, people back to episode 27 where we talked about that more at length, but would you mind to just briefly state your theory there? Um, and, uh, and then lastly, before we close up, uh, plug your Judex. Yeah. So the retributive model would, is, is designed to punish the action. So, um, it's, it doesn't, the goal, the end goal is not to rehabilitate the offender or even to, um, confer benefit to the community, but to identify what wrong occurred and to punish that. And so I, to the extent that there are uh, benefits that come from that, for instance, the person decides they didn't like being punished and they go get rehabilitation, that's great. Uh, to the extent that it encourages less crime in the community, that's great. But the focus is not on trying to mold the individual, but rather uh, identify what harm was done and providing an appropriate response to that. Uh, so there's a lot attached to that. And 
we did a podcast on it, which is on, I posted on Judax. I know you have it posted on yours and I've written extensively about that. So, um, yeah, and I'll link to certainly link to all of those in the show notes, all of your articles, as well as our, our podcast on the topic. I, I like, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to at least state what, what that theory is at a high level, because our listeners hear my, my thoughts all the time about <laughs> the war on drugs. And, uh, and, and I think it's beneficial to, to hear your position in particular, because it, it sort of addresses the, the objection that brings about these problem solving courts, right? That the courts aren't working to fix, you know, these problems uh, from drug use. But your point is, right, it's, it's not about whether they have these secondary uh, effects of deterrence or, or reducing crime. It's about punishing the person for the action, right? So yeah. um, that's... And I think because, this, because the group, in our case, the, the Indiana General Assembly or whatever has, has said, these are things that we think should be crimes. And then we send a signal to the individual and the community that, this is a crime and it deserves punishment. Yeah. And I also happen to think that has the benefit of being the most effective way to encourage people to change their behavior. But uh, that's not necessarily the goal of retributive theory. And it, and it allows us to, it allows judges, lawyers, prosecutors to focus on what our real core function is and do that well and not dilute our abilities throughout all these other functions that other people can do better. Great. Well, um, last thing before we close up, would you mind to plug your, your Judex Substack? Yeah. So uh, substack.com slash Judex, J-U-D-E-X. Judex is a Latin term for judge. So that's where that comes from. But um, love for people to go there, subscribe, give me feedback, um, read what we have. And uh, also um, there's a lot of crossover with what, what Alex is doing, what you're doing here. And so I'd encourage people to do both. And and uh, we were talking before we hit the record button too that that your wife recently started her own podcast called the Contender, right? And she also right. has a Substack, so I'll I'll try to link to that as well. Um, yeah, and and I told you uh, again before we hit the record button that I really like that that story. So I hope uh, I'll link to that Substack in particular about where the the name Contender comes from uh, because that's a that's a great story. Well, great. I appreciate it, Alex. I, I, I'm glad of what you're doing and, and uh, glad to be on. And thanks for doing this. Yeah, well, thank, thanks. Thanks a bunch for coming along. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll link to all these these resources in, in the show notes. So uh, I look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. And, uh, uh, you know, encourage people to to go check out your, your Judex. And uh, of course, episode 27 that we recorded together a few months ago. So uh, thanks again, Judge Houchin. All right. Thank you, Alex. Take care. All right, All right everybody. I, th I appreciate uh, that you tuned in. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a little something. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. And until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.